Our readings tonight come from Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Shortly before he died last week, the great Irish poet Seamus Haney texted his last words to his wife, and they were noli temere, which are Latin from Matthew fourteen twenty seven, where Jesus says to the disciples in the boat, be not afraid. There's been quite a bit of buzz on the internet this week. Uh, trying to understand what the great poet was uh, trying to say, uh, what it meant, why he chose that verse, even a debate about the Latin grammar. (laughs) That's understandable because when someone dies, the last things they say to the people that they love tell you a lot about what they care about, what they value, uh, what they've learned. We also have Jesus' last words to his disciples, not on a text, but on John 14 to 17. And they were in a similar situation. They were afraid as Jesus prepared to die. And Jesus comforts them. And it's interesting how our Lord comforts the disciples. He teaches them about the Trinity. John 14 to 17 is the lengthiest and most mysterious and clearest exposition of the Trinity that we have anywhere in the Bible. Jesus talks about the Father. He talks about the Son. He talks about the Spirit. He talks about how all three members of the Godhead work together for the salvation of the world and the the ultimate salvation of each disciple. So, one of the main reasons we study the Trinity is for comfort. Our Lord, when he, when he had one last shot, one last talk to give, one last teaching, he taught about the Trinity, three in one. And so one reason that we're going to devote this fall to studying the Trinity is for comfort, to strengthen our faith, to grow in our knowledge of God, to understand him better. 
So one of the things that we'll do, and I envision this project uh, working itself out in two, two different ways. I think the first four or five weeks we'll go to Scripture and, and look at all the different Scriptures that lay out the foundation of the Trinity. And that'll be hard work. There isn't a book in the Bible called First and Second Trinity. Uh, where all of this is laid out. It took the early church 400 and really 600 years to flesh out the doctrine of the Trinity. So the first half of the series will go to Scripture and lay out the doctrine. The second half of the series will ask, what does that mean? If it's, if it's true that God exists as one yet in community, what does it mean uh, for us as a community? What does it mean uh, for us on mission? Um, and if we have time, uh, I'd like to even do a sermon on the social vision of the Trinity. Uh, does the way the Trinity interacts with each other have anything to say about what uh, a healthy society or, or city looks like? And again, this will not be easy work. Um, I think we could think of this as an ascent up a mountain that's shrouded in mists. Um, a lot of people have gone up the mountain there are a lot of different ways up the mountain. Uh, some of the paths that we go up uh, will be a little bit overgrown and people won't have walked them in a while. Uh, but I think the journey will be worth it when we get closer to the top and uh, the, crowd, the clouds break and we see for just a moment uh, a vision of God that we've never seen before. I wanted to start tonight by, by just reminding us what a tremendous challenge the disciples were faced with uh, theologically and in their understanding of God. You know, Stanley Grins, in a book called Theology for the Community of God, puts it like this, if, if we could put that up. The faith of the early disciples required that they bring together three different strands of belief. The heritage of monotheism, the confession of Jesus' lordship, and the experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now think about how challenging this was. The disciples were Jews. And so they were devoutly monotheistic. I mean, that's one of the defining marks of Judaism. Uh, they had prayed from birth the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so this was the belief of every Jew that met Jesus. It was the belief of Jesus himself that they were worshiping one God. That's what set Judaism apart from all other religions at that time. Yet, the early disciples had come to know Christ as Lord. And they'd also experienced the Spirit of God active in their midst as well. And so, th there was this amazing paradigm shift going on of, okay, we believe in one God, yet we've experienced Him as three persons. How do we put this together? Well, the, the New Testament never puts it all together in a way that we would like. But the New Testament often refers to the one God living in a community of three persons. And tonight I just want to give two examples. And some of these verses I'll have you turn to. If you have a Bible, don't turn to this. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. our Lord says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there is a Trinitarian command in the Great Commission. Peter begins his first letter to the churches saying he's writing, quote, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit 
for obedience to Jesus Christ. And there are many other texts like this where we see that the early church was holding together their belief in one God, but also their belief that that one God existed as three persons. Tertullian, the church father, put it like this. He said, God is one, but not alone. And the New Testament writers seem to have embraced this by the time that Jesus had uh, ascended into heaven, which raises an interesting question. Is it possible that there were some clues or hints in the Old Testament that suggested that the one God of Israel existed in a community of persons? Was there anything in the Old Testament record that prepared the people of God for the Trinity? And I think it's a very important question to ask. Uh, tomorrow morning, I'm having breakfast with a friend who's Jewish, and he's on quite a, quite a journey. He's wrestling with whether Yeshua is indeed his Messiah. And one of his big objections is, how could God be three? He's not three in the Old Testament. And one of the things that I look forward to sharing with him in the morning is some of these verses from his scriptures that suggest that God may indeed be a community. So where do we begin? Well, let's go back to the very beginning, where Austin read a moment ago, Genesis 1, 1 to 3. Now, I'm not saying that there is a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament. There's not. But I do believe we can find clues that foreshadow and point to the doctrine of the Trinity. So, Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. So note in the first three verses of the scripture, the distinctions uh, among, uh, among the characters involved in creation. God creates the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. The Word of God brings the light into existence. So you have three different persons involved in God's creation of the universe. Now, if, if you have your Bibles, so flip over to Genesis 1.26. Then God said, by the way, the, the Hebrew word here is Elohim. Uh, Im is a plural ending. Um, of a word. So even in the very name of God, there is a, a hint that something more is going on here. But God says, let us make man in our image. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Now, why does God use a plural verb and a plural pronoun here. Why does he say, let us make man in our own image? Why doesn't he say, let me make man in my image? Well, some have suggested that God is using a, a plural of majesty here. And uh, in other words, that he's talking the way kings talk. If you've ever heard the 
king or queen of England saying, uh, we are pleased that it didn't rain all through the Olympics or something like that. It's a, it's a, a royal we. Uh, but I had a professor in seminary that always spoke in terms of the royal we. It was sort of weird, really. But he, um, there's no other example in the Old Testament where a Hebrew a monarch uses the royal we. So others have suggested that God is talking to the angels. So he's saying to the angels, let us create man. But the problem with that is, uh, that would mean that the angels created man. And the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that God created the angels like he created man. The church fathers all saw a reference to the Trinity in this passage. That, that this, is the, this is a hint that God exists in a community. That his use of the plural pronoun suggests that the three members of the Trinity are talking to themselves as they prepare to create the first human beings. Now, if you have your Bibles, go over to Genesis 16, 7 to 13. In the Pentateuch, uh, there are several passages where the angel of the Lord appears and is identified with God himself. And this angel uh, seems to be different than other angels in Scripture. This angel uh, is, is like God. Genesis 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, he's talking about Hagar, after Hagar had been sent out to the wilderness, by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, what do you notice about that? The angel of the Lord is speaking as God. He is saying something that only God would say. He goes, verse 11, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called, pay attention to this, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. So Hagar experiences the angel of the Lord as uh, God. God who has spoken to her. And we'll look at them tonight, but the angel of the Lord appears again in Genesis 21, 22, 31, Exodus 3, Judges 2, Judges 6, and 13. And each time, the angel of the Lord is identified with God, but is distinct from him. Now, if you have your Bibles, go over to Psalm 110, verse 1. This is one of the psalms that is most frequently quoted in the New Testament. It's an enthronement psalm. In other words, David is, is uh, praying and singing it uh, as he's being installed as the ruler of Israel. Psalm 110, verse 1. David says, The Lord says to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So you see what's going on here? David is praying, and he says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Now, the New Testament often cites this uh, in a way that goes like this. God the Father is saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand. But even without this uh, fuller New Testament teaching on the Trinity, it seems clear that David is aware of a God living in a community of persons. Now, let's look at two more. Proverbs eight twenty-two to 31 Proverbs 8, 22 to 31. This is a chapter where the author is referring to wisdom as a person. In verse 22, remember these are probably written a thousand years before Christ. Proverbs 8, 22. Wisdom is speaking. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with his fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him, like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So this person, wisdom, exists before the beginning of the earth. Wisdom was present when God established the heavens. Wisdom worked as a master craftsman in creation. Wisdom is appearing as a divine person, sharing with God in the creation of the world. So here we have another clue that God is one, but not alone. Now let's look at just one more, and I'll wrap up with a couple of observations. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. This is a prophecy, famous prophecy, a famous messianic prophecy. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is a messianic prophecy that says that a child will be born. 
He'll rule on the throne of David. The Lord of hosts will do this. But the child is not only a man. He will rule forever. And he's called Mighty God. So, we have another hint that the one God of Israel exists in a community of persons. Now, one of the tricks to this series is it's going to take quite a while to develop the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Unless I change course, which you know me well enough to know is a good possibility. Uh, What I think we're going to do next week is look at the role of the Father. Then the following week, the role of the Son. The third week, the role of the Spirit. And the, the following week after that, how they all work together. And then we'll start asking questions like, well, if they relate like that, what does it say about how we should relate? If they're on mission together, what does it say about how we should be on mission together? If they represent a perfect society, does that give any hints about what the city that we are trying to serve might look like? We're going to ask questions like like that. But I don't want to put all the application off for till October. Um, and so let me make two, two observations uh, to kind of get us going tonight. The first is a quote, and I can't find out who wrote it. Um, At the center of the universe is a relationship. If what these texts are saying is true, if they're pointing to the Trinity, this is a distinctive Christian belief that as far as I know, no other religion believes. At the center of the universe is a relationship. Uh, That God is ultimately a community in love with each other. That Love, 1 John 4, 7, is the distinctive characteristic of God. You want to know what God is like? He's a loving community. That's what God is like. Uh, Larry Crabb, writer, puts it like this. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity establishes relationship as the foundation of everything Christian. So that's the first observation. If these texts are indeed pointing to a a God who is one but not alone, then it means that at the center of the universe is a relationship. Second, if God is fundamentally relational and we are made in his image, then we are fundamentally relational beings. If God is fundamentally relational and we are made in his image, then we are fundamentally relational beings. In other words, we are built for community. We can't function without community. We won't flourish without knowing who our people are. It means that sin ultimately is a violation of of relationships. It means that Sanctification, whatever it means, is relational. It means that worship is relational. It means that justice is relational. It means that, that everything is relational, that we are built for that. It, a, a young lady was saying to me some time ago that she wasn't in a relationship, and it really hurt her. She felt lonely, and 
And she was very embarrassed that she wasn't dating. And, and she felt very bad that Christ was not enough, that she couldn't just rely on Christ. And, and of course, what she's missing is that Christ himself, God, created her to be in community. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be in relationship. Loneliness is simply a clue that you're human. (laughs) We were created for relationship. Now, I also think this can help us understand how we get into such deep and twisted relationships because sin has messed everything up, of course, and we want community so bad because we are created in God's image, and God is relational, we want that so bad that we will go after it in wrong ways. But the fact that you are in a bad relationship or are pursuing a bad relationship or are coming out of a bad relationship does not mean that your desire for relationship is wrong. It means that you're created in the image of God. And I think for our single people particularly, this is something the church hasn't thought through very well. Uh, we, We say, we read that verse in Genesis about Adam and Eve coming together and getting married and they have community, voila. Well, what are you supposed to do if you're not married? What if you're a widower? What if you're divorced? What if you haven't been married ever? What are you supposed to do if that's true? If, if, if you are built for community? It means that as, as brothers and sisters, we need to create places where our singles and our marrieds are doing life deeply together. Deeply together. It's, and especially in a culture that is putting off marriage 10, 15 years longer than has been traditional, then we have to work even harder. I heard several stories this week of singles on uh, Labor Day weekend uh, not really having anyone to hang out with. And uh, one of the things that really encouraged me was one of them uh, decided that each day of the weekend she would call a friend. And she would say, I'm alone this weekend. Could we spend a couple hours together? And I thought, that is the healthiest possible way to deal with being an image bearer. She doesn't shame herself. She doesn't numb herself. She realizes, I'm a single woman, home alone on Labor Day. She doesn't go into a big pity party about why nobody calls me which just, by the way, makes everybody want to call you, right? She takes a proactive effort and says, I feel lonely. Please spend time with me. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, it's not a sin to feel lonely. When you feel lonely, it's a sign that you're made in the image of God. And let me say one other thing. Marriage doesn't cure it. You are created, even if you have the best marriage in the world, for more than your wife or your husband. Don't ask your spouse to do all of that relational work for you. If you're created in God's image, it's much bigger 
than that. Let's pray.